Give us for our sin of omission and commission. Prepare our heart and mind to receive your rhema word on this morning. I am covering myself, the listener, our family member with the blood of Jesus, that we will not get any backlashes from this prayer. Continue to open doors of favor for this ministry and the overseer in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The conference has been muted. All right. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. This is really beautiful. I know it is raining in some parts of the country. I don't know where you are, but hopefully, you know, this morning as we spend time in the Lord, the Lord will rain upon you, just like how we did last week um, on the prophet from the book of Zechariah, chapter 10, where he says, like, you know, ask the Lord for the rain. And, uh, you know, God is raining in your life and your family, and we just need to grab hold of. So with that said, I just wanted to welcome all the podcasters who are listening to this. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, may good Lord bless you and keep you and your family. This morning, as we go through this journey, uh, you might have seen last week, we just like went into the mercy seat. We talked about like a God's mercy um, and the cherubims and the gold plate and everything. But I wanted to take a moment to say, why did we take a detour from the Sermon on the Mount? Right? We were going really well with the Sermon on the Mount with like a three more chapters to complete on the Sermon on the Mount. But just after finishing the Beatitude, after finishing the salt and the, and the light, we jumped right into this. And so I want to take a few moments to talk about why we went this route. The reason why... I went this route is because starting tomorrow, it's the Black History Month. There will be a lot of people talking about reconciliation and restoration of relationship. And so when I went back and looked at the Bible, throughout the history of Israel, when we read in the Old Testament, the condition of the nation is directly, directly correlated to the condition of the temple. The nation of Israel was doing well when their church was taken care of. When the church or the temple was neglected and or in ruin, the nation was cursed, overpowered by the enemy, or they went exiled. Right? So, there is a huge correlation between the temple, synagogue, the church. You can call it what you want. But the thing is that the place where the presence of the Holy God resides, if we are not taking care of the place where his presence resides, then the nation will never recover nor reconcile or restore. So there are two or three examples. I want to very quickly touch before actually I go to the, the, uh, the ark itself, right? Throughout the history, right, 
we see the kings that come up. Some kings are really good kings. Some kings didn't do well. But here are the few, right? I looked at this king named Joash, right? Uh, and we will get to the, the message in a moment, right? I wanted to build this part of like a why we need to do what we are doing, right? Joash, in the second chronicle, chapter 24, uh, if you get a chance, I want you to go to second chronicle, chapter 24, verses 1 through 24. It's actually 24, so you can actually remember 1 through 24 if you're not writing down. The thing is this, this Joash, this king was made king when he was seven years old, right? I'm not going to read through those verses, but just give you a high, high level. And, and the thing is that the first order of business that he did was telling his people to build a temple. He wanted to rebuild, renovate, and refurbish the temple. That's the order. That's the first signature once he became the king. That's the, the, the ordinance that he put in place, right? And he asked one of the priests, Jehoiada, to, to even put like a box in the front of this um, tabernacle, and he just like, you know, was collecting stuff that he can use for building the temple. But as we read through, right, at some point in this journey, that priest dies. And after the priest dies, the king goes rogue. The king starts to worship the idols. King starts to go away from what he originally started from. He started to neglect the church. He started to neglect the tabernacle. And so here's what the God says in verse 20 of this book, of Second Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20. It says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, who is the priest that the king appointed to build the temple. But the Spirit of God descended on him. He stood before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands and keep yourself from prospering? You have abandoned the Lord, and now he has abandoned you. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't like this, this nation, this particular time in that, uh, you know, when these verses were written, this nation was actually started doing right things. But somewhere, they just got idolized by other things. They got like a, taken away from what they were trying to do right. And they were moving away from the temple, leaving the temple in ruins, and leaving the condition of the temple without any attendance. And so now, because of which, God says, you have abandoned me, and I'm going to abandon you. Think about it this way. If God abandons this nation... What would have happened to this nation, right? He will not, you know? And that's the example that I want to go next. The next example is actually on the Second Chronicles itself. Another, verse, uh, another king comes on chapter 34, Second Chronicles 34, Josiah. This king also... I cannot believe these kings, when they became kings, they were like a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old, 
and they have to, you know, uh, take care of a nation like, uh, you know, um, Judah or uh, take care of the entire nation of Israel and so on. But then here is another king, right, Josiah. He comes in Second Chronicles chapter 34. And this king, when he started his journey as well, the Bible says in that chapter 34, he was eight years old, he became a king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. Normally, if you are not that good, you may not have like that much of longevity. What did he do right? right? The second verse actually explains that. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. For the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the Lord of his father David. And the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the modeled images. What is he doing? He is trying to clean up the church. And he is trying to clean up the temple. He is trying to make God the first place. When he started to do something for the Lord, clearing the uh, area, while he was still doing that as a king, the people of this nation was getting rogue. And they were still worshipping the idols. That They were worshipping the, the, the things uh, of this world. But then... The verse 26 to 28 of first, Second Chronicles 34 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart, this is the king's heart, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words, against this place and against its inhabitants, you humbled yourself before me. And you tore your clothes and wept before me. I've also heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its habit inhabitants. God is, God is the God of judgment, and uh, he is the God who, who knows the, the, the things of this earth. He is not away from what we are going through. But the thing is this, even though the people were doing wrong, God was telling this king, because you did really good, you humbled yourself, you fasted, you prayed for this nation, and you tried to rebuild this temple because you take care of my house, then I'm going to take care of you. We will bring prosperity back into this nation, not by going to the nation's capital, but by going to the temple where the Lord resides. The beginning of the racial reconciliation doesn't begin in Washington, D.C., but instead the restoration will begin when we start to renovate and give importance to the temple 
of the living God. When we give attention to the temple, we give attention to the Lord. Every reconciliation and the restoration in the history of Israel began from their temple. Later, when they came back from the exile, from the Babylon, and they knew that their walls were down, they knew the nation was in ruins, everybody was taken, everything was demolished, but they didn't come back and build that nation, you know, with all the walls and everything came afterwards. The first order of business the children of Israel did was to build a temple for the Lord. I was talking to, um, you know, Miss Sarah and some of the ladies earlier today. The state of our nation, you know, has to be questioned very heavily. Why? Because many of the cities, many of the cities have less than 3% of the people go to church on Sunday mornings, especially cities like San Francisco. It's 3.5% of the people only claim that they go to church. There are different cities across this nation, uh, especially, you know, in the, in the northern part of this country, uh, everywhere across, uh, the, the highest number of people that go to church is actually Louisiana at 18%. States even like the Carolinas, we are trailing somewhere in 8%. That means 92%. Why go to California and talk about San Francisco? We have work to do in Charleston. We have work to do in Charlotte. We have work to do in Columbia. We have work to do in Greenville. Unless we come back and pay attention to the temple, then all the effort that we do to reconcile these people and their race is going to be futile. And that's why I wanted to take a rerouting of everything that we are doing. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely amazing, and we will go back to it. But the Bible says in Revelation chapter 9, 7, verses 9, when John was taken into heaven, and God gave the vision of like what will be looking like in heaven. And here is what John is looking. And as he's looking everywhere, he saw this. These things Chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with the palm branches in their hands. God is... Moving us, when you get a chance, I I encourage you to read this entire chapter of Revelation, chapter 7 of Revelation. There, God is talking about how he just wants to bring us all together. In fact, John is asking, who are these people? And God says, these are the ones that are washed by the blood of the Lamb. And the thing is, God is going to bring us all together. But today morning... As we go into this temple and we watch this, what is happening around 
uh, I wanted to look at like uh, some of the construction projects that God had, you know, through Solomon, Ezekiel, and uh, Zerubbabel, and it's uh, the furnitures inside the uh, the temple. We started off looking at the mercy seat, but in order for us to just like understand this whole picture, right? We need to understand that the, you know the tabernacle that they built in those days, the tabernacle, the blueprint that God gave, had like a three different sections: the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies, right? And each of these sections of their tabernacle had different furnitures that were sitting on it. And when you walk into the tabernacle, you started off with the outer court. In the outer court, they had like a brazen altar. They have a brazen laver. As they come into, they, they start to see the show of showbread and so on. But the innermost part of the church, if you go to the, the very end of the tabernacle inside, where the the presence of the Holy God was sitting on, the, 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 that's the place where God is starting, you know, to talk about this Ark of the Covenant, right? This is a Solomon's temple. Uh, I mean, Solomon built uh, the, the, the temple based on this uh, same, um, you know, um, the, the blueprint. Ezekiel had the same blueprint. Zerubbabel had the same blueprint. God did not change the blueprint at all. God has been consistent with his blueprint. You know why God was so consistent with his blueprint? He did not change his blueprint. He didn't change the specs because Hebrews chapter 8 verses 5 says that the, the system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. Why? Because God already has this tabernacle. There is going to be a day that we are going to see our King, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when we go into His presence, His tabernacle, we're going to see the exact same tabernacle exists in heaven. This tabernacle, this shadow that God is talking about, this blueprint that He's talking about has been the blueprint all the time. Right? When, when Solomon built his temple based on this blueprint, in today's value, it was like a, over $56 billion, not million, billion dollars to build, right? And so each of these rooms, as you start to see, it's going to come closer and closer and closer to God. And my prayer is that in the next couple of months, when we start to go through each of these, this is just like a how... We, we have seen um, the, the, uh, the spirits, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like, uh, you know, the armor of God. We're just going to tear this piece apart, this temple, tabernacle, the content of this tabernacle apart. And we're going to see what God is trying to say to us. And so this morning, 
before I actually go into this word, I wanted to just pray for a few minutes. I wanted to take time to say, like, God, this is our prayer. This is our offering. This is our fish and bread. Father God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters on this line that you will speak to us, Father God, through this word, that you will just like a go into the places of our heart and just like a form a new and renewed strength, Father God, for every one of us this morning. Help us, Father God, to understand this blueprint, understand this uh, various uh, aspects of this, the characteristics, the covenant of this blueprint, Father God. We surrender ourselves this morning into your mighty hands. Amen. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. This is where we are going to linger a little bit today. And I'm going to read from verses 8 through 16, Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 16. The Bible says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnitures, furnishings, just so you shall make it. This is an instruction. God is talking to Moses while they are still in the wilderness. They have already come out of Egypt and God speaking to them. Right? And here is the description. starts. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. The acacia wood, even the gum that comes out of this acacia wood is, is used today uh, as a medicine for a medicinal purposes. Even the gum of this tree is used for healing purposes. And God says, uh, you know, my whole plan starts with healing. Right? That's why this whole going into this tabernacle is so beautiful. He says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. These numbers point to so many things in the Bible. We will just jump into it. But know this for sure. Here, God is just talking about the Ark of the Covenant, and he's giving the description of it, right? And it's... It's like the good size box. We will look at these measures in a moment as well. And you shall overlay it with a pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and the two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the ring 
on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put it, put into the ark the testimonies which I give it to you. So here's the thing. When we look at the picture of the tabernacle, it actually starts from outer court, where the brazen altar and the brazen laver, the, the pot for washing the hands are out there. And then, you know, you come to the holy place, you see some furniture, and then you come to the very end, which is the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is. So if God was going to write about his tabernacle, he should have started with the outer court. He should have started with the, what was the first thing that they see, right? No, but instead, he starts with the, from inside where his presence is, and then he goes outside. And the thing is that the, and, and the elements of things that you are going to see in this also comes in the same order. The closer we come to the presence of God, it is made out of gold. Everything is made out of gold. The further away that we get to, then silver is used. And even further away, bronze is used. So God is talking about this place, this holy place that I am going to be talking to you about, is what God's saying, is very critical. This is where I am going to sit there. This is where is my holy of holies, right? And he's talking about this ark. This ark that, that God is talking about is, is, is more than the piece of furniture. And it is a, a place where God is going to sit and speak to his people. There is like a mercy seat that sits on top of this ark of the covenant. And that's where God sits to talk to his people. Right? So here's the thing. When I looked at this, I just realized that, uh, you know, this Ark of the Covenant that, uh, that, that Jesus is talking about is not the only time Jesus has talked about this Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the Bible says Jesus has spoken about the Ark of the Covenant. There are 185 references that we find in the Bible, in the Old Testament of the Bible. Forget the New Testament, because we first need to look closer to where we are, right? 185 references. So it's not something that we should take it light. The measurements that we saw in cubits, there were people that have gone completely nuts over the Ark of the Covenant. When I was just researching, I found how they were just like a mapping this and coding this to grace and leadership and the government shall sit on his shoulder. It's all pointing to reconciliation. That's why it is important for us to look at the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. This morning, I wanted to talk about the three arcs Apart from this Ark of the Covenant, there are three other Arks that Bible is also talking about. Everybody knows about Noah's Ark, right? It comes in Genesis chapter 6. 
Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, it's talking about like how God was giving a plan for Noah to build an ark. Right? He gave a blueprint for, on which you know, he wanted to protect his people. And he wanted to have Noah pick up this ark, and he wants Noah to work on this ark well before there was a rain that was going to happen. But when the rain came, when the storm came, here's what happened. When the storm came, the Bible says the storm on the outside didn't have any effect on the obedience on the inside. This ark that uh, we, we see as described in Genesis chapter 6 is no different, you know, than the ark that we see that is sitting on the tabernacle. If you see that ark, it's just like a big giant box that Noah built. It didn't have like a, we actually came up with all this kind of like a, you know, the ark um, uh, spec. We just like, you know, used our imagination and we made it like a boat with like animals coming out of the boat and everything. But truly, it is nothing but a big giant box that was floating in the water. It had, nothing that God said was to have like a rudder in the front and just like a, a, a roving arm to the side. Nothing. It was just like a big black box on which the people, the children of Israel, you know, the, at this point, there's no children of Israel. So sorry. The, the, the family of Noah was preserved inside that box. And the Bible says it was thick, thick, dark inside. It was painted inside in black. It was like a big black box. That's how this, uh, this airplanes today, they call it like a black box. You, you know, none of these things in, in our today's usage came out of our own thinking. We we're not creative. It's all written in the Word of God, you know. So we are talking about the black box, but this black box was talked about in Genesis chapter 6 that was floating on that water. The whole family was preserved because of their obedience. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, through faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, right, moved with a godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he con condemned the world and became the higher of righteousness, which is according to faith. Basically, God gave this plan, and God gave this plan to Noah in the, in the context of preserving the people, in the context of like obedience. A father's obedience saved the entire family. And then the second ark that the Bible talks about is actually in Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. These are, the, the reason why I picked up these verses and these chapters, we'll get to the Ark of the Covenant. But the thing is, the same contextual word that is used in all these things, 
I'm not a, I, I don't know Greek. I don't know all these things. I'm a, I'm a student of the word just like you are. And I'm going by all the research and everything that I read as well, right? And so um, I looked at this word and I was looking at the concordance. I was looking at all these people that are talking about. It's the same word used in Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, where it says, when this is about Moses, Moses' mom was ready to give a birth. And at that point, there was a big ordinance that was going in this whole nation where they wanted to kill all the firstborns. They wanted to kill the children of uh, the Hebrew children who were supposed to be massacred, right? So the mom decides to preserve her son, right? And so the verse 3 to 6, this is how it says that, uh, when she could no longer hide him, she could no longer hide Moses, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbled it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds of the river banks, river's bank. And the king's sister stood far off to know what would be done to her. And, and she stood, um, you know, far off to see what would be done. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. When she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of Hebrew's children. Here, the mother of Moses built an ark to break the generational curse that was happening in Egypt. She wanted to protect the kid. And when she even put it into the ark, this box, right? When she put the the son in that box and put it into the river, she knew that there is going to be alligators and crocodiles in that river. She knew there were snakes in that river. But then she has protected her son in that box. If you see the description of it, inside and out she has put like enough strength. It wasn't like a, you know, a bowl where she just like left her son in some of the movies that they show, like it's like an open box. No, she just like packed with all the protection when she left that baby in that river. And here, what we have seen is an ark on which a baby with absolutely no strength was laying back and trusting. I, you know, of all the ark that I looked at in the Word, this is one of the arcs that, where the faith was at its best. The faith, uh, you know, of us needs to be like Moses when we are lying on the ark of the covenant. Because the presence of God is all over that ark. This is the resting place where we should find our Savior's heart. It doesn't matter what 
happens around us, what goes through us, what goes around us, we still need to be lying on this ark and the strength of this ark. The, the, the box by itself is not like a, a, you know, anything different, but the baby wasn't questioning the presence of the Holy God. Right? And the enemy has absolutely no control over what is inside that ark when that baby is at rest. And another ark that I saw was in Genesis chapter 50, verses 26. This ark, this word that is used as an ark is also uh, translated in English as a coffin. When Joseph died, so Joseph died, Genesis 50, 26 says, when Joseph died, being 110 years old, they embalmed him and put him in an ark or put him in a coffin in Egypt. Right? And, and the thing is that, you know, when even the, the dead things were put into the ark, like a, a, a mummy case, you know, God doesn't want to deal with the, the, the dead wood, the dead things, you know. We don't want to open it because we wanted to leave it under the ark. There are like a different elements uh, that are residing inside that ark. We're going to look at the, each of those elements very soon. But the thing is that God says certain things of your past. I don't want you to remember. I want you to leave it in the ark. So what are we saying? These three arcs that we looked at, the Noah's Ark, is about the obedience of the Father. The, the, the Ark built by, you know, the, the, the Moses' mom was the height of its faith. And the, and the Ark on which Joseph was laid down is, is a place where we don't want to pick up what is already done. We wanted to leave it at the foothills of Calvary. We wanted to leave it inside the box. Let God deal with the past. We don't need to deal with the past. He is the God who knows how to deal with our past. And so this morning as we go into it, here's what happened. So when I started to, you know, um, meditate on this, uh, topic, right, the, uh, the art. The first place after the service last Sunday, I was telling this to Miss Sarah as well. After the service was over, I had to go to church, um, you know, uh, and then I came back. And the first thing that I did is I went searching for the Steven Spielberg's movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This was made in 1981. I wanted to see, like, how much of this arc uh, it's been described in that movie because that movie, the whole movie is about finding this lost ark or oh, come to it like, a, you know, it is lost and all those things. That's a completely different story. But the thing is like uh, how much of that is relevant, right? And what is uh, Dr. Steven Spielberg is saying and Harrison Ford is saying in this movie, right? The Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So when I watched that movie, it was so fascinating because every description that they have taken 
to talk about the Ark of the Covenant is actually from the Bible. In the movie, they're talking about like a, how American CIA's are trying to find the Ark while the Nazis, the Hitler's Nazi army is just like a, trying to find it and so on. But the thing is this, what I found watching through that is that the description of what they are going after, I mean, yes, they have made it like a movie. They have like a, all these add-on things put to it. Some of it may sound and look very close to reality, but, you know, we'll, we'll leave them. We'll leave this Steven Spielberg to, you know, take his claim on those things. But the point is, it doesn't matter who is looking at this art. They're saying the exact same things about the content of this art. They all talk about, I mean, the, the movies talk about the cubit sizes, like, uh, you know, uh, as we read in Exodus, those are like, a, you know, two feet uh, in height and four feet in breadth. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the length is four feet, which is the 45 uh, inches long, and, the, and then the height is like a two feet. So it's like a giant box uh, where God has placed a few things. It's a wooden box made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold and then has rings on both sides. So really, today morning, I want to look at, you know, what does this ark contain? What does this box contain? It contains three things. The Ten Commandments or the commandments or the commandments or testimony. Um, uh, it contains the Aaron stuff and a jar of manna. Right? It's just like all three of these things are talking about like the law, the priesthood, and God's provision. Right. We, we will look at it in a slightly different angle. The first thing, the reason why that God, um, three things actually, uh, you know, we'll come back to the relationship. We'll look at three things. One, the first thing that we will look at is how God, when he is placing these various elements into that box, it is showing his supernatural ability. He is the God of impossible. Right? The, the, what came out of uh, like uh, looking at the, each of these three elements, the first element I want to look at is uh, Aaron's rod. I don't know how many of you, some of you may have already done the research in this space. Uh, what was happening was that uh, um, there are different roles for the different tribes uh, of Israel, right? And uh, one of the roles was to manage the tabernacle, manage the uh, administration of the, the temple, right? And it was something that all 12 tribes were fighting for. I don't know what the reason why they wanted to go after them, but they were fighting to become Levites. They wanted fighting to sorry, they wanted fight they were fighting to become priests in the temple. And God was just like a, you know, wanting to show who he chose to be the Levite, the the, the priest, uh, and that's supposedly the Levite. And so all those bickering and complaining and the Lord was saying like I'm gonna settle this, right? And so in Numbers chapter 17, the Lord gives an account of this. Uh, in, uh, in Numbers 17, where God is talking about like a how he wants to, 
um, you know, give some uh, and show some of his magnificence to the people. I'm going to ask you when you get a chance to go back and read that one, but I'm going to give a synopsis of this. So God says, go ahead. This comes in Numbers chapter 17, verses 1 through 11, right? The, when the Lord told Moses, you know, tell the people to bring each of those tribe to bring a rod, right? And place it in the tabernacle. That's, you know, if I just condense all those 11 verses, this is all it's saying. Ask each of the tribe to bring a rod and leave it in the tabernacle for overnight and come back next day morning. But when you're leaving that rod in the temple, ask them to write their names on the rod. Ask them to put the name on the rod and just like, you know, leave it in the temple. So when it came to a rod that had the Levites, one of the tribes after the you know, was the Levites, right? So he wrote the Levites, leave those uh, rods in there. And when they came the next day morning, the only rod that, you know, was there, you know, had like some additional attributes to it when all the 11 other rods remained the same, right? So this morning we're going to look at why is God a God of impossible? Because, you know, this one particular rod, because God was sending a message to them saying, I'm still the one sitting on the throne. This morning, as you're listening to this word, I want you to know that there is only one God. There is only one Father that controls the heaven and earth. We could make all kinds of plans. We could have a marketing team. We could have a strategy team. We could have like a, the billboards. We could have everything that we are asking for that we do with our hands. But God says, I have a plan for your life. I'm going to execute my plan upon you. I'm going to, you know, elevate you. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to magnify you. I'm going to put you on a pedestal. I have a plan, just like what it says in Jeremiah 29. Right? I have a good plan for you. Right? So what did this rod had? What is the extra element this rod had? The Bible says that this rod that was left in that room, when they came back the next morning, it has budded and, 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 and almonds, ripe almonds were found in that, um, in that rod. How can a dead rod, a rod that was like taken away from the tree, there's no way that a, 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 a branch that we break it off of a tree and just leave it in a room will find, you know, the growth or the life, right? This is... This is, this is not a norm. But then, when that rod is in the hand of the Lord, it finds its source. It finds its life. Like how it is connected to the branches of the tree. God brought life into that dead rod. Right? 
It is so much so, like God is talking about, Jesus is talking about it. On the night before he went to the cross, he's talking about this very same thing. He says that branch that Jesus is talking about from the vineyard, that branch can bear no fruit unless it abides in him. In John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, God is talking about the branch that lives in him, that branch that takes the source from him. God was just doing the same thing to this rod that was dead and left, but because it was Levi's rod, the word Levi means attached. Because Levi was attached to God, he was bearing a fruit. He was bearing the flowers. He was bearing the, the, the nut, the almond nut coming out of it. He was talking about like a three things, right? It was the bud on the dead rod. It had bud. It had blossomed. And it had fruit. All three of those vegetation states were in one rod overnight and the research shows that in order for that particular you know nut to come from an almond tree itself will take five to twelve years it will take twelve years from the time a tree is planted to have an almond nut in fact, from the time it blossoms to begin the process to have the nut come, it would take 10 weeks to come. But God decided that night, because Levi has attached himself to me, I'm going to source my life into that dead rock. Dead rod. The problem doesn't define you know, where we are supposed to go. He's still sitting on the throne. He's still sitting on the dead thing in our life. And he still can bring forth what is needed. He is the God of impossible. He is a supernatural God. His powers can go through even the dead situation and bring them to life. And the thing is this. When, when we you know, have decided this whole relationship with my mother or my father is done. This whole relationship with my husband or wife is done. This whole relationship with my children is done. My business is done and it is dead and there's nothing that I can do about it. God says, I still see a life in that rod. I still can make the flower come out of that rod. I can still make the prosperity come out of it. This talk, this ark of the covenant, this tabernacle that God was giving the prototype or a blueprint to Moses, he is saying, I am still the one that has a power to change what is already dead. And the thing is this, you know, when, when we look at the, this whole Aaron's rod, right, it would have all started with, uh, you know, these people bickering and complaining, but God turned that into something alive. God was showing, I am still the one who can make all these things happen. Recently, I heard from Pastor Paul 
he is the one who is uh, a chaplain ministering to in, in Lee Correctional. As you know, many weeks ago or a couple of months ago, we had like a one incident where a father was killed inside a prison in Lee Correctional. And the thing is that uh, this man wasn't a very, uh, like a, he was very young and he had a six-year-old baby and an eight-year-old baby. And the thing was just like a lot of things that happened wasn't right. But then Pastor Paul told me that his dorm mate in that prison cell, he still could not believe his dorm mate was killed in that prison cell. And he said that this pastor, when he goes to the dorm, he gets a now an opportunity to minister to the guy who is sitting on that cell. He said that that man would have never allowed me to talk about Christ to him, but now he is allowing me to go and talk to him about the king. The God of this universe can even take the dead rock and he can bloom an almond out of it. He is the God of impossible. When we look at the Ark of the Covenant, we're not looking at an empty box or a box that has like a gold outside. We're talking about a God who is still making dead things come alive. We are still seeing a God who can make an almond, not flower and the bud come just by leaving the dead rock in the presence of the Holy God. When the God of this universe touches us, he changes everything. The next thing is showing a bowl of manna is sitting inside that box. What does this manna talk about? It's, it, in some cases, they say manna. In some cases, manna. So it's just like a, how they just like a put it, right? And, and, and the thing is that uh, all it is showing is that he is the God of eternal life. When the Israelites were complaining to Moses, saying they don't have any food in the desert, they're going to die, they were better off in the slavery with uh, eating those uh, onions and garlic, uh, and God just like it took us out. God heard their cry, and he sends the food from heaven. And the people didn't even know what it is, and so they were asking, what is it? That's what manna, manna means. What is it? And uh, in Psalm 78, uh, verses 23 to 25, uh, the psalmist is saying, this is the food from heaven. God opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna, manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grains of heaven. The human beings ate the bread of angels. In fact, Numbers 11 says uh, the Israelites, uh, you know, made cakes out of it. They boiled it. Uh, and they just like, a, you know, grounded like a flour. And they were just like a, taking care of the physical food. But then... When we look at it, Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus finished his fasting, just like many of us just finished our fasting for 21 days, here is Jesus finishing his fasting, and he's coming out of 40 days of fasting. The devil starts to tempt him, and he takes him. He comes to him, and he's reminding Jesus, 
If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The enemy was trying to remind Jesus of what happened in the wilderness uh, to turn even the stone to a bread. And God was just responding back to him saying, man, but man does not, shall not live by the bread alone because the bread that's sitting in the covenant has an expiration date. But God is reminding us when we look at the manna, manna inside that, uh, he's reminding us there is an eternal life waiting for us. He is the bread. Today we're going to go to the communion. And when we take the communion, God says, when you reconcile into me, when you become part of me, when my body is broken and given to you, and when you become one with me, then you don't have a death. You have an eternal life. Everyone who is born once will die twice. They will die a physical death, and they will die an eternal death when they go to hell. But when you and I are born twice, one from the physical body of our moms, and then through the incorruptible spirit of the Holy God, born again, then we only have like one death, which is a physical death then we will have an eternal life. And Matthew chapter 4 says that he is the God of eternity. This morning, I know I have to wrap it up. I have asked God to just like, you know, help us to go through this. You know, each of these elements, we will take time. There is no hurry for us to finish this topic. We'll come back to the other elements of this Ark of the Covenant. We are going to look not only what is inside the Ark, we are going to look at the other references to the Ark of the Covenant as well as it came to being. But today, I just want to wrap it up by saying the first element that is sitting on that Ark is reminding that He is a supernatural God and He can bring dead things to alive. The second thing that it is telling us is that he is a God of eternity and you and I don't have the second death when we give our life to Christ. This manna is just manna is nothing but a reminder to us that he not only takes care of our physical need, but he also takes care of our spiritual need giving us every single day an energy, a boost, a rain. Our, 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 our whole inner being is renewed and refreshed every single day. Because he's saying, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, when he talks about it, he says, give us this day our daily bread. God is not asking and saying about the past. He's not saying about the future. God says, when you ask me for the manna for today, I'm going to give it to you because uh, I have a plan for you for eternity. As we wrap up this morning, I'm just going to ask, uh, you know, Brother Vince to come and just like, uh, you know, talk to us about today as we wrap it up. And then, uh, you know, Miss Sarah, to just like uh, take us through the communion. Praise the Lord.
Amen. Thank you, Cyril. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Cyril, for this wonderful message from our Heavenly Father that you shared us with. The God of the impossible, the God of the supernatural, the God of eternal life, the God of our provision. There's so many wonderful names of our Father. Do we, are we reminded of that every single day, every moment of our life? I'm guilty that I'm not. And I'm reminded today that we need to seek him and who he truly is. Because once we understand who he truly is, it changes everything in our life. So thank you for that challenge today. Let me me just wrap up and and go through some of the stuff and and we could take some notes here. Uh, Thank you for reminding us about King Joash and rebuilding the temple today. And King Josiah, there's some information I was not aware of. Uh, and how he cleaned up the temple and how he honored him as the God of judgment. May we, you know, give attention to God and this temple, the blueprint that he created for this tabernacle. Wow. The specific detail and measurement of the temp, the tabernacle amazes me how he gave specifics. And, and the three different arcs that we learned about. Noah's ark the Ark of Bulrush from Pharaoh's daughter, and then Joseph's, the Ark that he was laid in. Wow. Um, How it all tied together. But all it goes back to is showing us through Aaron's rod that he's the God of the impossible, of bringing a dead branch, a dead rod to life. Uh, There's no words to describe that unless you fully trust and have faith in our, our God. And the bowl of manna is provision for us every single day. Uh, uh, wow. Um, as uh, One last, last comment. Reminds me of uh, one of the Beatitudes that we've talked about weeks ago. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we shall be filled. For they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst is our basic necessity as a human being, correct? We have mm-hmm. the hunger and thirst for water and food. Do we, I was challenged this week, do we actually hunger and thirst for God's word, for God himself? I challenge you with that final thought too, is how much do we hunger and thirst? That's a decision you have to make individually. Thank you. Thank you again, Cyril. Amen. Ms. Sarah, go for it. Okay. Thank you. Amen. Lord Jesus, we bow before you in humility and ask you to examine our hearts today. Show us anything that is not pleasing to you. Reveal any secret pride, any unconfessed sin, rebellion, or unforgiveness that may be hindering our relationship with you. We know that we are your beloved children, having received you into our hearts and lives and having accepted your death as penalty for our sinfulness. The price you paid covers us for all time, and our desire is to live for you. As we take the bread representing your life, that was broken for us, we remember and celebrate your faithfulness to us and to all who will receive you. 
Thank you for your extravagant love and unmerited favor. Thank you that your death gave us life, abundant life now and eternal life forever. We receive this bread in remembrance of you. And in the same way, we take this cup representing your blood poured out from a splinted cross. You are the supreme sacrifice for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Today, we remember and celebrate the precious gift of life you gave us through the blood you spilled. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says on the night he was crucified, before the night he was crucified, he sat down with his disciples, a close knit of people, and he broke bread with them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the element of bread. As you're taking this element of bread, know this for sure. The same bread that was there in the covenant ark that's broken is given to you and me so that he can make us incorruptible in the days to come. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to the disciples and said, drink it. This is a covenant, a new covenant. Jesus made a new covenant that night with his blood. And we will continue this journey and remembering every single act that Jesus did that night. But today, as you drink this cup, you and I are remembering the resurrection and the redemption that came through that blood. Go ahead and take Father God, we come before your throne of grace one more time today. You are the God who was and who is and who is to come. God, I just pray for all my brothers and sisters on this line as we, Father God, move into this week. God, let your redeeming power will oversee every single act. The things that are dead in our life will become alive because of who you are and what you have done on that rugged cross. We surrender ourselves, Father God, into your mighty hands. You take the glory and honor in every one of our lives. Now, as we before we depart from here, if there is anyone that just walked into this call with heaviness of their heart, Father God, as we lift them up right now, let the burdens of their heart roll away. Lighten their hearts, Father God. Receive the rain that God is pouring upon your life and that you will see his name glorified and honored. Father, we surrender in Jesus' name. Amen. The conference has been unmuted. Thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of the week, and we will come back again next Sunday. Okay, everybody have a blessed week. God bless you. Thank you, Sue, for that message. Thank you, thank you. Hallelujah. Amen. Cyril.
Yes, Ms. Harris. Sure, I'm still here. Wonderful, brother. I will see you. Talk to you very, very soon, brother. I'm walking you into have... the church right now. Okay. okay. I'll see you, brother, hey, very soon. I'll pray okay? for you. Thank you. Thank okay. you, brother. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Pastor Sarah, this is Sister Bland Bennett from Charleston. Uh, continue keeping on. You're doing a beautiful job. And thanks, to lo- thanks again for everything. God be with you till we meet again. Hello?